welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. I'm a transformational coach as well as creator of the Queers & Co zine and community. My guest this week is not only an incredible activist, but also one of my closest friends. If you know anything about children's rights and self-directed education, you'll probably have come across her work in some way. She's a feminist and children's rights activist. And whilst the next bit's a mouthful, we're going to break it down in the episode. She works on deconstructing patriarchy from childhood socialisation in education and family organisational and relational culture. She's also the co-founder of a self-directed consent and rights-based education setting called The Cabin, which we're very lucky to be a part of as a family. If you don't have children in your life, you might be thinking that this episode isn't particularly relevant to you. But I would argue quite the contrary. We've all been children and we all have experienced the oppression. It's kind of one of the universal oppressions that we've experienced in our lives. And quite often I find myself in spaces with activists who would not dream of talking about another marginalised group in the same way that they would consider talking about children. And I think it's really important to understand why that's okay and what we can do to change that. So I'm super excited to introduce you to Sophie Christoffi. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Gemma. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine. Good. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you and it feels a bit weird because we're friends in real life. Um, Indeed. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but it would be really great for other people than me if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. Okay, um, so I'm Sophie. Um, I have a few hats. I'm a children's rights activist fundamentally, um, but I'm also the co-director of a consent-based self-directed education setting called The Cabin. And I'm a trustee um, for an education charity called The Phoenix Trust, um, as well as being a parent to two children who are unschooled and, yeah, living life, basically. That's, I'd say that's probably a summary at the moment. <laughs> awesome. So there's lots to explore there, I guess, like lots of new terms that people might not have come across if they're not familiar with um, mm-hmm. unschooling or home ed, for example. So I guess, like, my first question will probably be, the fundamentals of what are children's rights? Okay, so um, there's a legal document which is helpful called the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and it was created um, in over the well over a couple of decades actually, and finally ratified in 1990 by the UK. But every country in the world has has um, symbolically at least uh, ratified the treaty, apart from the US. Interesting. Um, yeah, I know, it's a long story. But, um, <laughs> but uh, the UNCRC lays out a whole bunch of rights that apply to all people aged under 18. Um, and it was created largely to recognise the fact that that group have particular um, vulnerabilities in our society that other groups may not have in quite the same way and are deserving of, of a right, um, uh, a list of rights, basically, to help support them in, in living in a dignified and respected way. Um, and so, yes, like I said, it's, it was uh, ratified by the UK in 1990. So it's been around for a while now. Um, but uh, what I've found over my time of engaging with this issue is that it's not that wide, wide, widely known and it's not that widely practised um, is the kind of important part. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the, the, the basic principles of it are that children are people, they're not property of anyone, that they're rights holders, that they're entitled to a voice, that they're entitled to be themselves um, and to live a full life. Um, yeah, I would say that's the basics. Yeah, and they're really, um, 
I guess they sound like obvious things, but when you dig a bit deeper, you realise that children actually don't benefit from a lot of those rights in multiple scenarios. Yeah, definitely. I mean, traditionally, family culture, um, the culture we have in schools, kind of general social norms and values don't accommodate children's rights. Um, not, you know, that's not the, the norm doesn't sit in a place that makes um, the UNCRC um, easy you know um and so it was realizing that 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 encouraged my activism I would say because um I think it's one thing to feel as an individual that perhaps our culture around childhood and children like isn't right um but it's another thing when you realize that actually there is there is kind of a legal consequence to that um and a responsibility that people have mutually agreed to um Mm. that isn't being upheld and that's the point at which I sort of realised that this was a social justice issue and not just an opinion. <laughs> yeah, and I know we've talked before together that, um, well, I definitely have come across it and I, I don't want to assume that you have, but I imagine you might have, that when you're in other circles with other activists doing work in other spheres, they're generally like aware of potentially other movements or other marginalised groups, but not children. And... I find it really frustrating when I come across people, particularly queer people, um, so in my own community, who wouldn't dream of saying something um, about another marginalised group, but will be really negative about children. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating, actually. And and, um, yeah, I I think even when you get into intersectional feminism Mm. and and, um, are working towards appreciating how different um, different identities and different circumstances and oppressions overlap and converge and affect each other to, you know, create an overall experience. Um, it's not common um, at the moment for um, the condition of childhood um, to be included in intersectionality. Mm. Um, like you said, it will usually include, you know, um, issues around race, issues around gender and sexuality, issues around um ability and disability but um children are not included um generally in that in that approach and that that um lens um which is which is fascinating because it's the one experience of oppression that everyone has shared Mm -hmm. um and it's also the space where we learn all the others (laughs) so um in a way um childhood is should be the the base starting point to understand why we have all of these other issues in society um and and knowing that because of discrimination and prejudice against children um uh, knowing that that's what makes these other oppressions possible mm. um is critical because if you don't if you're not taking that perspective then you're essentially like trying to fight the fire by throwing water at the flames rather than going to the root cause of it and, you, it, you know, you can't make lasting change unless we address how children are socialised. Absolutely. And this idea of like um, having agency that all of a sudden when you're, say, 18, that now, OK, you can make decisions for yourself and you can live the life that you want to. But you haven't grown up understanding how that actually looks or so everyone's sort of mm-hmm. relearning or, well, I guess, just making it up for themselves as soon as they get to adulthood. And then they return um, their experiences on their children if they have children. Um, and just think it's like normal parenting I, I wonder if we could give some really kind of um clear examples of where maybe parents might be um well I guess just going against the UN um CRC basically well I think 
probably every parent, unless they're actively and consciously engaging with the idea of children's rights, will not be behaving in a way that's in in accordance with rights. Mm. Um, Because it's contrary to our to our mainstream culture of parenthood and and it's very difficult to to be in relationship with your children in a way that's different to the relationship you were in with your own parents unless Mm. you're making a really intentional effort to to think critically about your own childhood experience and to to allow yourself to explore alternatives Um, um, yeah, I mean, our, our dominant parenting culture is is literally a representation of patriarchal dynamic. It's mm. a power over dynamic where the parents um, are in a position of unaccountable authority. That, I mean, they are. They, <laughs> that's not necessarily true or what will happen in their relationship life if they behave in that way. But that's the perception mm. that a parent has unaccountable authority and the child is a passive recipient of that authority. And you know, and doesn't, isn't entitled to a voice. I mean, they might be privileged to some agency and some voice, you know, in, in the relationship at times, but it's not seen as their fundamental rights. And um, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's, this is like the, the relationship between the parent and the child is like the most, I think, difficult place to be activated in because it's so emotional mm. and it requires people to engage in a lot of personal exploration at a time when they are really busy and quite vulnerable because they've just become a parent. Yeah, yeah, sorry, can you remind me of your question? Because I think- No, no, it's great. I was just gonna ask if there, um, to sort of, we can both do it, whether there are any like real life examples where, because I think talking about this um, in the abstract, people will Mm -hmm. probably be on board, but if they realize like maybe what parenting they experienced or potentially what parenting they are um, giving to other children, Mm -hmm. how, yeah what what does that look like what are those examples yeah I mean I guess like any time a parent feels that they're acting in an identity that is other than themselves in order to be a parent that's a warning sign Mm. so if they feel like they're having to behave like an authority or a police person or you know that that they're moving into that place so it's like things for example around policing your child's body telling them what they should or shouldn't wear what they should or shouldn't look like you know controlling how they have their hair controlling um what food they put in their mouth you know how much of it and when Mm. those are all areas to where you think hang on what is the power dynamic here is this between like people that are in you know that are considering themselves to be equitable or is this where one person is really considering themselves to have authority over the other and to essentially own the other one you know and um i think it looks like um also when when a parent is engaging in a like good or bad binary with their child Mm -hmm. um that like something that they do could be good and something that they do could just be bad and punishable then that's also like another example so when when there's a response to something that a child does or says that looks like um you know wanting to make them feel worse um Mm. to change their behavior then that is another example of behavior that isn't right respecting um yeah, I mean, um, I think when I first became aware of this issue, I was just like a bit overwhelmed because everywhere that I went with my own children um, and was with other families, I was just, it was like triggering constantly because of how 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 normalised it is for parents to behave in a way that isn't respectful to their children. I mean, if, if a parent grabs their child and pulls them across the place, you know, unless they're in imminent danger, right? Like unless yeah. there's a genuine real threat, if they're just taking their child like with just I don't know as if they're an object Mm. like that that isn't um rights respecting 
Yeah, and the thing that I um, found really useful when I first sort of started looking into it was to think about how you talk to say a friend or a um a family member compared to how you might talk to a child and if you wouldn't Mm. say that to a friend or a family member then why the hell are you saying it to a child yeah definitely I mean language and speech is so important with this because Mm. we have a tendency to really patronizing way of interacting with children and a really kind of I don't know like um a diminishing way even if yeah. it's you're saying something nice you know yeah. you, oh, even when you someone cute. is cute or yeah <laughs> yeah exactly even, you know when it's you know you think you're being complimentary or you're trying and oftentimes that's the thing it's you know none of none of this behavior generally speaking is coming from a place of malice or unkindness or ill mm-hmm. intent it's not that people want to be mean to children like quite on the contrary i think generally people feel within themselves a desire to be loved by and show love to children mm. um but it's about how that manifests in behavior and and how what impression that leaves on the child and the extent how that then affects that child's perception of themselves and if yeah. you're you know constantly being patronized or you're constantly having your own identity like reduced to like really strict gender binary for example which is mm-hmm. so so common where um i think maybe for want of something else to focus on an adult will really you know um emphasize their perception of a child's gender identity in the interaction so everything's centered around oh you're such a good girl and yeah. you know there's a, a strong lean towards towards stereotypical um girly things for example in that relationship yeah. um oh, oh he's such a typical boy example. isn't he <laughs> like he's yeah, so exactly. he's so wild or like running around all the time a typical boy yeah and you just wouldn't you don't see that in adult life mm. like you know, if you walk down the street you, and you look around you, you, you know, you're going to see a huge diversity in the people that are there. I mean, I think yeah. we'd see a lot more if children were raised in a rights-respecting way because they would be a lot freer in adulthood to express themselves than they currently mm-hmm. are. But even now, you know, you see women with short hair, with long hair, dressed in more masculine ways, dressed in more feminine ways, and the same for guys. And, and, um, but we, like, the fact that there's such a gap between that and how children are allowed in our society to be and to present themselves is another example that how how adults are you know projecting control um children into a particular way that doesn't acknowledge their individuality doesn't acknowledge their own potential exploration of themselves um yeah yeah absolutely um so i guess that feeds into the um the idea of schooling so we've talked well, the thing is, I feel like there are so many questions that it will be useful to cover. Um, so I guess it will be good maybe if we can chat a bit about um, how that feeds into school. Like we have this kind of situation at home where children are oppressed, essentially, by the traditional parenting methods. And then they go to school. And then what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's a couple of things to mention when we, as we get into this. Firstly, I want to acknowledge that there are definitely people within the, the mainstream education system that have strong desire for change. Mm-hmm. And there are people within the system who are doing their best to create more respectful culture for children that are in their schools. So I yeah. want to just make that clear because, you know, when we talk about this, we're talking about an institution mm-hmm. um, and a system, you know, rather than wanting to, to um, cause pain to individuals. Right. Yeah. So, so that's really important to say. The second thing I think that is important to say is that when, you know, the, the tradition of schooling was never designed to be rights-respecting. Mm-hmm. So, that, so in, in its construct, the design of it 
doesn't make it easy for children to be respected. Um, and, you know, that's due to lots and lots of factors. It was, you know, schooling, traditional schooling started before children's rights existed, you know, a long time before. And it was created through definitely a patriarchal lens. Mm. And there's lots of limiting beliefs about children that went towards how schooling manifested and, you know, lo loads of things we can explore in the history of that. But those two factors, you know, are important before we start doing critique. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, school, schooling is not designed to, to allow for individuality. It's not, it's not designed to allow for curiosity, really, not in a broad sense. Um, there's often policies in place that limit and police children um, in ways that are unnecessary and aren't, you know, aren't for health or safety reasons. They're not, it's not in their best interests. Um, you know, the whole dynamic of schooling as a principle doesn't account for the personhood of a child. It, it requires children to be the property of the school mm -hmm. um, because they're being coerced and forced to learn particular things that are decided by other people. Um, they're not, you know, that relationship isn't mutual. It's not collaborative. It's one where it's one of imposition. And, and um, you know, that is a big problem if you want to be rights-respecting. Mm. Yeah, and I know you've shared quite a few things recently around like um, isolation or the removal of toilets or the conversion of toilets into isolation units. Um, mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you could say a bit more about that maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the one thing that came up for me in, in my research around the education system was how unprotected children are actually in school and how much free reign schools have in terms of um, giving out or you know delivering on what they would see as like punishment or consequences mm. um at the moment schools aren't regulated in their use of isolation rooms or isolation booths which is really worrying and i mean it's in breach of human rights like you you can't actually get you know you can't <laughs> you can't put someone in isolation for just an arbitrary amount of time or you know um uh, that's that you know it's just not right in lots of places mm. outside of schools you wouldn't be allowed um, no. so the problem that is happening is that you know this uh, schools some schools are putting young people in isolation for long periods of time in conditions that are unacceptable for for you know um, misdemeanors that like or you know perceived misdemeanors that are quite nominal you know, for example, if they have like the wrong colour socks on, if they have the mm. wrong type of shoe on, if their hair is looking a particular way. I mean, other things which are around also rights issues. <laughs> um, uh, but um, it's awful. I mean, there's, you know, there's research to suggest that it's very bad for children's mental health. I mean, that is, should be obvious. Yeah. That being isolated in that way isn't good. It's not healthy. Um, and what's great is that a very, um, a, a very, um, I don't know, like a campaign has emerged from within the system mm -hmm. um, to challenge this and to ask for guidance around it um, from the government to try and protect children, I guess, within schools. Um, yeah, it's called Lose the Booths or Ban the Booths if you want to oh, find okay. them on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Great. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so I guess we could talk a lot about school and like how you know the different ways that children's rights aren't respected but maybe it'll be interesting to talk um instead about what the alternatives are like mm -hmm. I mean we both are not sending our children to school um and yeah there, there are different options available I guess if people are kind of listening and thinking okay well you're saying school's so bad but then what's the alternative 
yeah yeah definitely and I'm a solutions oriented person so mm. for me once I realized that not only you know that's that there was a problem with school in terms of rights and children's experience um and that that was like so such a big problem it was a systemic problem that I wasn't going to find like this one great school where it wasn't a problem then then um, it really pushed me to think about like you said like what's the alternative then like what's the solution because when you have children in your life that you're responsible for it's no good just thinking oh maybe in 10 years you know mm -hmm. there'll be progress or wouldn't it be great if this happens somewhere in the distant future? I mean, you have like an immediate problem that you have to solve in your own family and yeah. decisions that you have to make. So, um, I mean, the first thing that happened for me was, was once I had accepted that school wasn't going to be an option was um, that then you become a home educator um, because that's the alternative to school and it's um, a legal right for parents to, to educate their children outside of school. Um, and then I was like, okay, so now what? Because home education is just not going to school. You know, mm. it's not it's not an educational philosophy in its own right. So then um, I started to consider and explore, like, so what would a rights-respecting education look like? You know, what does that environment look like? What's the dynamic of it? What do we need? If, you know, if you're going to create and design um, an education system in alignment with children's rights, like, how does mm. it need to look? And... After, you know I took a few years exploring that and I ran some projects in community to see how it might work because like you know I remember watching this great um clip about orangutans um needing that had been orphaned and that, that in their nurseries they have to have modeled to them how to be an orangutan because if mm -hmm. they don't see it then they can't be it and that mm -hmm. was such a useful reminder to me of that saying you know if you can't see it it's hard to be it and there wasn't something really for me to see, you know, to understand what was going to come next. Um, there are there are some really good examples of um, more rights respecting spaces and democratic schools, which I explored. Um, but in the end, I came to the conclusion that really the most important element of all of it was that it was consensual. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, so long as it was a consensual environment, then it would be fine. Like that covered all the bases to me. So, um, so in the end, after a lot of planning and preparation and, like I said, practice projects and so on, um, in January of 2018, I co-founded um, with Sarah Stollery a setting called The Cabin, um, which is a rights-respecting setting, explicitly rights-respecting by design, and it's consent-based. Um, so, yeah, um, it's, it's exciting and it's good to have a model that's up that, to me, represents, you know, the progress that's needed and where we're able to be in that practice to help us understand the blind spots that that exist, you know, in society where people have only known school. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. What does that look like on sort of a, um, a practical level? So um, you talk about self-directed education, for example. So like how how are the children self-directing their education in the space? Oh, it looks great, Gemma. It makes me I so know. excited to talk <laughs> about it. <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, I should so do self direction. So oh, good. good. <laughs> yeah, you can do a disclaimer that your daughter comes. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I should also mention that we're huge fans because my daughter goes. But um, yeah. yeah, carry on. <laughs> yeah, it's an honour to have you as a parent with us. So, um, so what does it look like? I mean, self direction basically is that you, ha you know, you're trusting yourself to know what you need to learn. And what you need to do, it's about tuning into that voice inside of you, that part. Like I would say, you know, depending on, on what you're comfortable with, it's like a heart-based place to learn from. Um, 
you know, with a bit of head stuff going on too, but, but ultimately you're listening to your body, you're listening to yourself, you're thinking critically around it. And then you, you navigate your learning experience yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the nice thing about the cabin is that you're then able to do that in community and in relationship with other people. So there's lots of scope for collaboration. So what it looks like in practice is a really dynamic space where a group of children of mixed ages and adults are at different times doing different things. Um, sometimes there's collaborations happening, oftentimes, you know, usually the, the group splits down into, into subgroups, I would say, to like make things they want to have happen. So at any one time you could have some people outside building dens, some people working on a Harry Potter play, some people sewing, um, some people reading in a corner, some people working together on exploring something they're interested in. So for example, this week I was collaborating with someone on a session about planets and the solar system. So, so, um, so we were doing that together and offering that to other people. Um, and it just looks very vibrant and alive. Um, the children can, can are free to move in the space how they would like to, whether that's inside or outside. So it's a really nature connected environment as well that you can go and be outside. And we love it when, you know, birds fly over and we can have a look or we had a deer in out the back the other day, which is super nice. Um, and we also go out so we can go down into the village um, and, you know, just explore freely like that too, which is really, really nice to be connected also to the community outside of our walls. Um, yeah. Is that a good description? I mean, I, I don't yeah. want to give the impression that it's that we don't have a frame because we mm-hmm. definitely do have a frame and that's really important for people to feel free. They need to first feel safe. I, f- I believe. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then kind of explore within that. And I guess um, exactly yeah. from our point of view as a, as a family kind of parenting a child who goes to that kind of setting um, one, I've noticed like a massive increase in confidence and ability to communicate with other people um, to sort of understand what, what someone needs and like be able to express that and I think um also just in terms of practical skills like um my daughter when she was seven I think there were three children from the cabin that chaired a meeting was it for 16 grown-ups yeah we had um, we ran a workshop for other people that want to create similar types of spaces Mm. and we invited anyone from the cabin community that had done the chair training um to chair a meeting to help us host that essentially so welcoming people to come and then chairing the actual introductory meeting for the people that come and yeah I think it was about 16 or 17 people came to that workshop and um yeah your daughter chaired which was great yeah and just to see I mean I I don't know that I know how to chair a meeting entirely now so maybe I could do with some chair training but seeing seeing that those children in that space I mean and also something I think is really important to notice so not only seeing that they have those kinds of skills and that now children as young as five can be learning to do chair training at at your um, at the cabin but also um the way that those children and I think a lot of home educated children in our community communicate with adults they don't talk to them as though they're these kind of um well one they actually talk to them because I know when I was a child I was scared to talk to adults it was kind of just like yes and no and look away Mm -hmm. so they have conversations but they also have conversations with them like they are people (laughs) and actual humans rather than um there being this kind of weird power dynamic or um the parents don't patronize the children they just have conversations as equals and i think that's really um something that people often comment on when we're out and about in other situations that um both my children just just talk to people like they're people um so yeah i guess what i'm saying is there are like 
innumerable skills that come from that um but i think yeah and it's oh sorry go ahead i was just gonna say it's very interesting because like i said you know a lot of a lot of what i'm doing is is quite um it's quite innovative and so we are following hypotheses quite a lot of the time Mm. that you know i'm self-experimenting on with it and i'm also in this relationship with my own children so i feel like that you know i have a sense of confidence around it just through my own anecdotal experience i would say Mm -hmm. um but um we don't you know it's this is kind of like frontier type stuff and and um but what's nice is when research comes up separately to to reinforce our practice. And I noticed that um, a recent bit of uh, research came out of the Sutton Trust the other day that cited some um, research that had been done looking at what... Okay, so this is, this is kind of like getting back into the activist chat. But mm-hmm. um, it basically said that the reason why... Well, one of the big reasons why um, the elite elite group so basically so, and, and they were framing that as in people that had gone to to private school had more social influence mm-hmm. was not just their socioeconomic background but it was to do with the the relational dynamic in the private school and and what it said was that because the um the young people in the private school see themselves as equals with their teachers it then means that in their life they feel themselves to be equitable to people in authority mm-hmm. so when they're negotiating when they're asking for things their the position their their understanding of themselves in relation to the people in power is very different to what you would get in in someone you know theoretically who has been in a more traditional dynamic relational mm-hmm. dynamic in school where they perceive themselves to be sub- submissive to the authority and not equals at all and and the research from the Sutton Trust strongly suggests that that is one of the most key factors in being able to make social change or being able to achieve the things that you want in the world that you live in. So even if the only thing that happens for children that come to the cabin is they perceive themselves to be equally human to the people in positions of responsibility, that has a huge potential consequence in terms of the world we live in at large. Because those people you know, will go on believing themselves as they should, because this is just what's true, right? Mm-hmm. People in authority are not better or, you know, more entitled <laughs> to determine our lives than we are. But that's how we're socialized <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to create a gap and, and creating this more equitable dynamic and relationship in, in this space is, I mean, we just don't know what that looks like, you know, at a societal level. And apart from the fact that previously up until now, it's been disproportionately an experience felt by people in private school. Yeah, that so, makes a lot of you know, sense. Right? So if, mm. if you imagine, like my intention has always been to have a wider influence on what we do at the cabin. You know, my desire is that practices that we're working on here can, can filter to mainstream spaces. Because I think that that is ethical. And I think that, you know, everyone, all children should experience their rights, not mm. just the, the minority. And... And if, you know, if the one, one thing that we can do to then empower all those people in mainstream school is to, to shift that, that relational dynamic. So they see themselves as much of a person as the people in, you know, the adults in the space. Then, then I mean, in terms of my theory of change, like that is right on it, basically. People being more, feeling more empowered and feeling their voice matters. 
Yeah, I can, I can so see if I look back like across my life and how I was when I first started working, for example, like I still asked if I could go to the toilet <laughs> and yeah. I just didn't know that I, you know, that I didn't have to ask permission for things or that I was able to, yeah, I guess just talk to people in authority as though they were human. So I think that that mm. feels so powerful. Um, and I guess, you, I mean, also, oh, sorry, sorry I'm so excited. I like, <laughs> I know me too. I'm like, I'm there sorry. are so many questions. <laughs> Yeah, it's so juicy. Oh my god! <laughs> but I mean, this is the thing. Like, I was in a, I was in a sixth form not that long ago. I was there to talk about politics and and things with a group of students who are actually like politics students. You know, they're doing government politics A level. Mm. And this is a group of sixth formers, so they're aged seventeen and eighteen. And right at the start, like before we'd even started, one of the um, one of the people in the room put their hand up and he asked if he could go to the toilet, and the teacher said no. Oh my god! And I was just stood there, being like, "What is happening right now? Like, yeah. is this for real? Like, is this, <laughs> this?" And I looked at them both, and I was just like, "What? What is? What relational agreement do you guys have? Like, yeah. he's, you know, probably eighteen years old. Like, but but the thing is, a lot of this is becomes so normal. Yeah, it's just so normal. You know, just becomes part of the culture of that space, and, and it, you know, it's just." Yeah, but until you step out of it and you start to think about it, it you don't see it. No. You're, it's like you're just blind, I think. You know, largely but I was. You know? Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's, <laughs> there's, a <lot> of, <laughs> there's a lot of scope for progress. You know, there's a, Definitely. small things like that. Like there are, there are things that, that can be done right now in the mainstream system that will help. You know, that without having to change anything at governmental level, without having to have big changes even, small things that can start to close this gap and start to increase um, people experiencing their rights. What kind of things would you suggest? I mean, you know, like I would love to sit down with a head teacher and, and really help them look through their, their sort of hidden curriculum in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, the, not the things that are supposed to be being taught, but the things which are which are being taught by, by, you know, by consequence of policies, let's say, or mm -hmm. um, even the way the day's timetable, you know, just be great to have a look through all of that and, and see where the opportunities are, because I think there's a lot, you know, for example, at the cabin, um, we have um, th things being offered in the plan of the day where they're either run by one of the children, run by a facilitator or run with a facilitator and a child together. Mm -hmm. These are like more structured things. Like I was mentioning before, the planet session that I did the other day with someone. Yeah. Now, like most um, schools, as far as I know, have, have um, activities which are not like curricular activities or they're kind of additional to the, to the, um, you know, the main curriculum that's being delivered, whether that's lunchtime clubs or after school clubs, for example. Mm -hmm. um, why, not, why not approach those spaces in that way? You know, yeah, see whether so cool. or not you know you could you could have some some things being offered by teachers some things being offered by students some things being offered by students and teachers together mm -hmm. and and then you're kind of like integrating a bit of a self-directed element into the school day with really not having to do very much apart from just change the culture of the of those um those those times and yeah. yeah i mean that's like that's one thing that i think would be really fun to to explore cool and um, and what about so we talked about it really briefly before and we have talked about it um in the past the idea that you know not everyone can send their children to um a self-directed space because obviously mm -hmm. they don't exist everywhere um and you know in order to home educate your children like for my in my personal circumstances the children's dad works full-time and 
um, I kind of squeeze my coaching and other work into any other space that I can get. I know you do the same. Um, yeah. So there is, in a way, like there is an element of privilege that comes with, you know, having someone in the family that earns a full-time wage that is enough to be able to kind of survive. Like we're not, um, yeah. you know, we're not millionaires, but equally we, we're kind of able to just kind of keep afloat. And yeah, so I guess it's like, what, what about what do those people do who maybe couldn't afford to take their children out of school? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how can they, I guess like the pair the way that they parent can be, um, can be different, can't it? If, if people aren't already parenting in a, a more consent based way. Yeah. I mean, like you, this is a real problem. It's a real mm. problem. Like there are so few spaces that are like the cabin um, available right now in the UK. I mean, like very, very few, there are some, but I mean, the chances are that, you know, you don't live near one. <laughs> like, that's much more likely than you living <laughs> near a setting like the cabin. Um, and, um, and like you say, I mean, the other thing is, which I think is really important, is that when you, are, when you opt out of the, of the system, so to speak, you make yourself more vulnerable as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also more dangerous for some families than others. You know, if you, if you present as a white middle class family, you are safer. Than you than when you're out and about in a town in the daytime during school time with your children, I would say you know based on considering how how um you know racism and other things affect how people feel you know in public and how they live their how they experience their lives in relation to to um, services and authorities. So so I think that you know that that that's important to mention and and how class um, does make this in a way easier for some people than others especially if they feel you know even if it just comes down to a sense of self-confidence around being able to choose other than school Mm. um and so you know it's 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 something that is a common you know we need to be having conversation regularly about how this is this is an issue and the social justice issues around um being able to access something other than schooling (laughs) you know it's it's a it's a big big topic to explore um and yeah i mean in terms of how you can make it work when it's not an option to not be um you know with to to opt out of school i think you're right there's there's ways that you can be in relationship with your children um that increase the levels of uh, levels of respect i guess you know mm. one the main thing i would say is is to think about honesty in the relationships um because to me, when you know where there is where there is dishonesty between between parents and children is a big red flag, or it's indicated to me that there is a there isn't a mutually respectful relationship happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, because adults have you know adult privilege means that that adults can conceal and and they can they can you know I mean I don't know just like lie to their kids I guess <laughs> I don't know what to say like how to make it sound nice but yeah but. Um, it's a problem like we have you know it's a problem that we have where we don't have necessarily transparent and honest and authentic relationships between parents and children and and that would be what I would be encouraging people to explore you know like reflect on the extent to which they feel authentic and honest in their relationship with their child Mm -hmm. and you know at the end of it as well like the we you know we can only be in in a rights respecting relationship with our children in as much as we're in one with ourselves um you know it's hard to just manufacture that if you're not actually living it in your own relationship with yourself and your own life so 
you know, a big part for me in being able to practice what I preach is, is constantly working the principles that I advocate for at the cabin. You know, I'm, I'm self-directing myself. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, trying to use my own voice. I'm listening to myself. I'm, I'm being as authentic as I can. I'm living in as most, the most consensual way in my relationships that I can. Um, and I think that, you know, what, anything, again, anything that we want for our children, this is, an, this is kind of another interesting point. Whenever we find ourselves doing something to or for our children because we think it's best for them, right, or going to be make them into something that we think is good, like whenever that happens, it's an invitation to actually stop and turn that mirror right on ourselves. Mm. Because when we're treating children like a project, right of development <laughs> and and not not um first exploring that project in our own lived experience and in our own self then it's another example of inequality like of an unequitable dynamic yeah um, and, and you talk a lot about um well i guess people meeting their own needs as you as you just have been but like the idea that we actually um well I guess in society in general we're not encouraged to meet our own needs in any way and mm -hmm. so we're constantly living outside of a state of having our needs met um and it's only I think there's a there's two things so like for me one thing was realizing that no one was going to come along like once I found out about unschooling and self-directed education no one's going to come along and be like oh you can be this now like you've been mm -hmm. working really hard for your whole life and so I've decided to gift you this promotion or like to gift you this new career that you've always been wanting and understanding that like you just have to do the stuff that you want to do so for example I would not have trained to become a coach or I would not have um started Quiz and Co if I hadn't have if I hadn't realized that I didn't have to wait for someone's permission to actually do the things um that the knowledge was out there and I could I mean I am very lucky that like I'm in a position where I could um use kind of existing skills to like go and research for example um how to make a podcast or how to um, mm -hmm. train to be a coach all those kinds of things but I actually the idea of like going and getting things yourself or going and kind of choosing a project to work on like no matter how small and it can just be for yourself um is really for me it was revolutionary just understanding that I was actually even allowed to do that because I thought that learning stopped as soon as I left university and if I mm -hmm. wasn't doing a course or like I wasn't doing some kind of qualification then there was no need for me to be like working towards something or it didn't mean mm -hmm. anything yeah totally and this is like de-schooling 101 right mm. like you know school teaches us that we're only as legitimate as the person the person with perceived authority says we are mm -hmm. <laughs> right like that's it <laughs> you know we're only as good as someone's mark that they gave us says we are yeah. right and that's like so not true i mean it's so subjective like a lot of that anyway yeah. and and um it's such a disempowering um space to be in with our own concept of learning and and like it's very distracting actually from the reality which is that humans are learning all the time mm -hmm. like you can't help it everywhere you are at all times you are learning something <laughs> like you know we look around us we're observational creatures we look around you know, we scan the room, we, we make decisions based on what we see, like that we're learning through experience all the time in all of our relationships and everywhere we are. And, and one of the, you know, the unfortunate 
kind of like maybe unintended consequences or at least side effects of traditional schooling is that we have we internalize a belief that the only legitimate learning happens within an institution that calls mm. itself a school or a university or you know has has um constructed accreditation related to it and has created a hierarchy within it that that you know makes us feel like it's legit <laughs> and i'm yeah. not saying that those spaces aren't necessarily useful they are useful you know it can be really useful to access something that is more structured or to connect with people that have got expertise on something and and to choose into to doing a course or you know developing our knowledge or, or in in a way that is within an environment like that that's very purpose-built you know um but that's that's an element of our own overall learning experience not the sum of it mm. and and um and and also i think that you know for me if i had if i had tried to get to what i'm doing now through official channels it wouldn't have been possible because there isn't a course that exists out there to teach me the stuff yeah right it's not it doesn't exist and if i had felt that i wasn't legitimate or capable or didn't know enough to to be doing what I do now, you know, to identify as a, as a children's rights activist, to found a space like the one that we have, um, on, based on my own research, you know, based on my own capacity to learn and to, to, uh, to acknowledge that every time there's something I don't know, that I have, have the um, personal authority to find the answer, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, then, then we would be stuffed, you know, we would be just stuck in the status quo. And I think that it requires us to de-school, like let go of this idea that the only important and meaningful and true things that we can learn is something that happens in an institution and like branch out, like, like branch the fuck out because, you know, I'm drawing in my, you know, at the cabin, we talk about having an ed positive, a principle of ed positivity. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like a play on sex positivity where it's basically like if you're not hurting anyone you know if you're not hurting yourself someone else or the environment then go for it like yeah. you know in terms of what you want to learn about everything is potentially up for grabs and we don't have a hierarchy where we say these subjects are the important ones and these ones are the hobbies mm -hmm. right so um and you know because of it's a very sort of um i guess it would be like transdis transdisciplinary approach which actually a lot of universities and schools now are aspiring towards having a culture of interdisciplinary practice or transdisciplinary practice because it's acknowledged that it reduces your blind spots. Mm -hmm. Right. So, but all of us as individuals can, can live and learn in that way by not believing yourself to be only good at something and not good at something else, or one set of knowledge is for you and other sets of knowledge are for someone else. And in practical terms, for me, what that's looked like is researching across disciplines right to answer my questions mm -hmm. so it includes reading books about economics reading books about psychology reading books about history <laughs> you know reading reading um, feminist uh, work you know reading spiritual work you know it's like cross the board because because um it makes for a better solution yeah yeah it makes it helps it moves for it makes progress it's that's the creative way to go about doing things and and um and i would really encourage you know uh, whoever whoever is out there if you have a problem or you're dealing with an issue or your job is to like to answer something like open up all your channels and now with the internet there's nothing the, the gatekeeper's gone yeah yeah fuck the gatekeeper <laughs> yeah like fuck the gatekeeper there is no gatekeeper like that was something that worked for a while 
it doesn't work anymore. Like, yeah. you know, the internet has dem democratized information. You can yeah. access stuff. And do you know what else? Like, if you can't access it for some reason, someone that you can contact can help you. Like, mm. Twitter is amazing. I've been helped, you know, to, to develop myself and to learn things that I need to know by being in relationship with other people and asking them, like, can you, can you send me this document? I don't have access to it. Do you? Yeah. Yes, I do. Here you are, you know, like talk, <laughs> talk to other people. <laughs> and like, that is also some, another element of de-schooling is moving out of an idea of scarcity and competitiveness with yeah. other people who are oh interested God, yeah. in the same stuff as us. Mm -hmm. no? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I was just going to say, um, collaboration is a huge part of like, self-directing your education isn't it as you say reaching out to other people who might be in positions where they can access things that you don't have access to um, yeah. and also thinking about how that works in a child parent relationship so quite mm -hmm. often one of the questions that I get asked when we're out and about and I say that my children are home ed then people will say um, oh and also I should mention like they're home educated not homeschooled because we don't replicate mm -hmm. school at home um, and people will say oh do you teach them and I don't really like I tend to just say oh no we you know the children follow their interests but what is really important is that you do not need to be a teacher or you don't need to have gone to university or have done any kind of specific education or training in order to home educate your children the way that I see my role is like as a facilitator to their learning so mm -hmm. I don't know like I mean my children ask a lot of big questions about, you know, philosophical, uh, philosophical questions and all kinds of things. And I don't know the answers. And so my job is not to say, well, I think this or at school I was taught this. It's to say, oh, that's a great question. Let's go and find mm -hmm. out the answer and to take them on that. I guess like facilitate them on that journey of exploration to find their own answers, which is then hopefully what they will continue to do as they grow up rather than needing yeah. input from a person who is an expert in inverted commas um, yeah. to impart them with knowledge. You literally need two things to do this, right? Two things, curiosity and critical thinking. Mm. That's it. That's it. If you've got, if you are engaging with curiosity and you are taking a critical approach, like you're good. You're good. That's it. Yeah. And maybe the internet too. <laughs> internet helps, but you know, even without the internet, that people have been doing this before the internet even existed. Oh, yeah. So we're so lucky now. I mean, you know, the internet makes this journey faster, <laughs> you know, broader, <laughs> maybe more fun, more interesting in some ways. I don't know. It has limitations too in other ways, um, mm. but it definitely helps with them um, building community. It definitely helps with yes, organizing. Like, yeah. And in terms of, you know, supporting people to find um, other, to find friends and to, to um, create opportunities together. Like if it wasn't for social media platforms, then, you know, it would have been a lot more difficult and a lot more time consuming to achieve what, you know, just from my, from my own perspective, like what I've been asked over the last five years. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been able, the things that we've been able to create have happened in, in a very fast process because of being able to use the internet and social media. Yeah. And I'm conscious of time, but I just wanted to um, bring in this idea of like queering things. So I'm obsessed mm -hmm. with queering things as I know you are. Yeah, me um, too. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea of like being a queer person in these spaces instantly means for me, I think that I don't have to like play by the social norms. I can choose to do things differently um, because I don't really feel like part of mainstream society quite a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just wondering how like how queering has come up for you in different spheres of, of your work and your life? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I would, you know, it, you can totally describe this way of being as queer. Mm. Like it's queering from the norms for sure. And to me, it's in alignment with a lot of queer theory. Like if you were going to create a queer ed system and it would look like this, that's mm. my personal opinion. Yeah, it's rooted in consent. It's open. Um, you know, you're negotiating your boundaries. You're able to self-identify. Like it's, it's very queer. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a, you could say it's a queer space. Um, I think for me personally, one of the, one of the things that was an indicator and a red flag for me early on in terms of wanting to find an alternative to school was, was around the fact that I think this is what you were hinting at. Like I was feeling as my children were approaching school age, I was starting to feel worried <coughs> about how in my parenting, like basically how my parent, my, my parenting in which I try to be, you know, well, try to create a culture of social justice in terms of being very open around sexuality and gender identity and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like whether that was going to actually endanger my children in school, mm. because I thought, well, if, you know, it, what if they go in and they're holding those views and they are rejected or bullied or, you know, it's, it causes them to have like a problem. Or what if the teachers undermine those values? Like, and then they take that on board as being true. You know, theoretically, that shouldn't happen. You know, legally, it shouldn't happen. But, like, I think that, you know, especially schools that are often set around, like, strict gender binaries, for example, where you can only be a boy or a girl, and there's, like, a boy-girl uniform, a boy-girl toilets, and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, it was really important to me that, um, that the spaces in which my children were growing um, didn't reinforce any you know, any of these traditional <laughs> issues around sexuality and gender and, and other things. So we're coming towards the end of the, the time now. And I just wondered every episode, I ask someone um, what it is that they recommend other people check out. And I wondered what it is that you might like to share. Um, sure. So um, there's so much uh, good stuff I'm enjoying at the moment. But I would just say that um, I have so much gratitude and respect for Bell Hooks and thanks to um bell hooks's work it's you know really given me so much insight into loads of things definitions of love you know ideas about what relationships look like you know if they're not patriarchal just amazing um uh, i just love love her work so um, at the moment i'm working through teaching to transgress which is brilliant and i would really really recommend um, people check out that from bell hooks teaching to transgress it's on audible and you can buy it as well amazing thank you i'll put it in the show notes thanks oh and is there anything else that you wanted to um mention or include before we come to a, a close i just like want to put out a recommendation for courage <laughs> oh. um, as well you know uh, courage is so important and we don't talk about it enough i feel like you know, sometimes you have to just find that part of yourself inside that feels courageous and like allow yourself to roll with it you know like uh, this way of being and this way of living and I'm sure this resonates with lots of your listeners because you know queerness requires courage mm, <laughs> right fundamentally yeah. you, how you can you, you can't even take that word unless you have some courage in your bones so mm. so um you know, if you're, if for anyone, at least this is what I do, whenever I'm starting to feel like unsure or I'm feeling a bit, I don't know, just vulnerable or whatever, I just try and like find my way back to that word and, and just let myself sit with it for a bit and it gets me going again. And um, yeah, so courage is my friend and um, they want to be your friend too. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's amazing. Thank you. Thanks That's so it. much, Sophie. <laughs> Such a pleasure, Jen. You're awesome. Oh. <laughs> um, these podcasts are great. So exciting. I love it. I can't wait to see what more is going to come. Oh, thank you. Thanks for being part of it. Pleasure. Pleasure. Bye. Anytime. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. I hope you found it interesting. And as you can tell, Sophie and I were quite overexcited about talking to each other on the podcast. I've been really hoping for a while that she'd be able to to do an episode with me. And um, you might notice towards the end, there's a a change of subject quite quickly into the thing that um, she wanted to recommend. And that's because she had a visit from one of her children during the podcast recording. And then uh, we kind of got to the end of our train of thought and decided we'd leave it at that. If you're keen to follow Sophie's work, and I highly recommend that you do, you might want to check out her social media, which is at S Christoffi, both for Facebook and for Twitter. And Christoffi is spelt C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-Y. I'll also share her website in the show notes, which you can find at gemkennedy.com slash queers and co, as well as uh, some notes and some links to things that we've talked about today. If you're enjoying listening to the podcast series so far, why not send it to a couple of friends and recommend that they have a listen to? It really helps us to grow our listenership. And I'm really keen for the people that I interview, their voices to reach as many people as possible. Also, if you have a guest that you think I should definitely chat to, then get in touch with me at The Gem Kennedy on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and let me know who you recommend. Join me next week where I'll be talking to an amazing autistic advocate. See you then. Bye.